For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, from Fronteras, Laurel Morales connects the pipeline protest in North Dakota with what's been happening to tribes in the Southwest for decades. Essayist Adiba Nelson sees a bright future for a new generation of black creatives in Tucson. Meet a woman who came to the United States to pursue her musical dreams. And I'll talk with physical theater artists Rick Waymer and Kate Clark about bringing Kafka's monkey to the stage. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Thousands of people from around the world united with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe last year to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. The protesters have faced a series of setbacks since President Donald Trump took office in January, and construction is continuing. The movement brought a megaphone to the battle between what tribes believe to be sacred and what others consider fair game in the U.S. KJZZ reporter Laurel Morales spent months digging deeper into the pervasive issues here in the Southwest for her Frontera series, Earth and Bone. Two years ago, Energy Transfer Partners held a meeting with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota. The company laid out their plan to build a $3.8 billion oil pipeline across the Missouri River and adjacent to the reservation. Engineer Chuck Fry explained they currently move the oil by rail. This pipeline will give the producers an alternative means of moving product. We believe it's a more energy efficient and a safer way to transport crude oil long distances. Former Councilwoman Phyllis Young told Fry and other company representatives that the Standing Rock Sioux are the keepers of the river and a pipeline leak would be devastating to them. Water is life. Miniwichoni. You, as a human being, cannot drink oil. You need the water to survive. We are the vanguard. We are Hunkpapa Lakota. That means the horn of the buffalo. That's who we are. We are the protectors of our nation. We will put our best warriors in the front. Do not underestimate the people of Standing Rock. Young's words cast a spell. Fast forward two years, the tribe launched one of the world's longest protests. Thousands of people drove, flew, or hitchhiked their way across the country to block construction of the pipeline. Police sprayed tear gas, shot rubber bullets, and fired water cannons in below freezing temperatures. Some protesters threw rocks and burning logs at officers. Photos and videos of the violent protests appeared in a blaze across Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Hashtag no dapple. Still, construction workers bulldoze through Standing Rock Sioux burial ground and sacred sites. Cities across the country responded with rallies to support Standing Rock. In Flagstaff, people of several southwestern tribes march, not just for Standing Rock, but for their own sacred places. Andy Dan is Navajo, but knows the pain of Standing Rock all too well. His family has been relocated and has suffered fatal illnesses from working in the coal mine. Within the last hundred years, everything has been taken from native land, so it's about time that we come and stand up and 
unite as indigenous people. Here in the Southwest, protect the sacred is a familiar battle cry. For decades, 13 tribes fought a ski resort that wanted to make snow out of treated wastewater on a sacred mountain. In the end, the resort won. In 2008, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that making snow, while offensive, posed, quote, no substantial burden on the tribe's exercise of religion on the San Francisco peaks. Today, the city pumps treated wastewater several miles up the mountain to make snow. And it is a substantial burden for Navajo activist Klee Benelli. It's something that worries me, you know, all the time when I, you know, pray or when I participate in ceremonies. I question the effectiveness of those prayers. Benelli and many others are hopeful the Standing Rock Sioux fight represents a turning point. On December 4th, the Army Corps of Engineers halted the bulldozers in their tracks so the federal government could conduct a thorough environmental review of the project with the tribe's help. But President Donald Trump has signed an executive order advancing the development of the pipeline. Jan Hasselman is an attorney for Standing Rock. It would be patently illegal for the incoming Trump administration to simply reverse the decision to perform a full environmental review of the pipeline crossing at Lake Oahe. Trump isn't skipping the review process, but through a loophole is attempting to expedite it. Laurel Morales, Flagstaff. Earlier this week, a federal judge denied a request by Native American tribes to halt construction on the final link of the oil pipeline. This story is part of a series produced by Laurel Morales for Fronteras called Earth and Bone. You can find more at fronterasdesk.org. Despite its size, Tucson's black community has a rich history all its own. From the legacy of leadership that emerged from the Dunbar School, Tucson's first and only segregated school that was established in 1912, to playing important roles in influential protests on behalf of civil rights. But rather than looking back at history, Adiba Nelson chose to look forward with this essay. Welcome to Black Futures Month. I'm Adiba Nelson. Today, we're talking about Black Futures, more specifically, the creatives. Yes, I am going to focus on the sweet, glorious, clutch your pearls uprising of the Black creative on the Tucson scene. Because, well, our creativity is pervasive, and this is Tucson, and it's February. I mean Black Futures Month. So let's get into it, shall we? Black people make up a whopping 4.3% of Tucson's population, but you wouldn't know it if you had to judge solely on the richness we add to the creative landscape. Tucson has the privilege of holding space for some of the most multifaceted creatives this side of the Mississippi. From painters to designers to poets and rappers, we have it all. You just have to know where to look. Consider me your trusty tour guide. First up, Teray Fowler-Chapman the poet and host of the monthly poetry gathering Words on the Avenue, and the newly minted playwright whose very first play opened at Centennial Hall and closed to a standing ovation. Whether you are looking to be wooed by Therese's sweet telling of how she met her fiancé, or looking for a deeply profound call to social justice in the name of Black Lives Matter, Therese delivers on all fronts. You can catch Teray at Words on the Avenue the last Sunday of every month at Cafe Passe. Deanna Din is a fashion designer and seamstress who has been featured in Tucson Lifestyle Magazine as an up-and-coming designer. Her clothing line, Fruition, embodies the beauty that fashion media at large would tell you has no home, the curvy, confident woman. 
Deanna Din is six feet tall and has curves that make the road from Flagstaff to Sedona look like a straight shot. And she knows a thing or two about not being able to find clothes that work. The lady who wears fruition is not a lady willing to fade into the background, and Deanna Din makes sure of that. Elizabeth Deneau practically wrote the book on tactile creativity, effortlessly cavorting from fashion to paint to mixed media collage to ceramic sculpture and back again, all without missing a single syncopated beat. If her government name doesn't sound familiar, maybe her clothing line does. Candy Strike. Yes, Elizabeth Deneau is the creative mastermind behind the uber retro goth girl meets skater chick clothing line Candy Strike. And while I have happily oohed and odd over her clothing, it is her artwork that literally takes my breath away. My favorite piece? A black woman wearing a crown made of fried chicken, hot sauce, skulls, and roses with alligator heads dripping blood from their teeth as shoulder pads. It is currently unnamed, but I call it Do Not Underestimate. Here's two more for you. Rapper Jaka Zulu. He raps consciously and has a thing for metaphors like I have a thing for gin. We love them. When asked why, he says he loves putting words together, dropping clever rhyme schemes, double entendres, and such. If you have ever seen him perform, you know that his brand of wordplay is not something they teach you in school. Jaka Zulu's moves are his lyrical aesthetic in action. He says his sound is experimentation, and if that's at all true, I have a feeling he'll be in the lab for a long time to come. And to round out this beautiful Black creative spectrum is Anton Russell. Anton is the founder and host of Mama's Milk, a poetry cipher supported by men, but created to specifically center the Black woman. Anton says he started Mama's Milk because when he considers a compassionate human being who wants the same good for themselves as everyone else, no more and no less, he pictures the Black woman. If you'd like to witness his amazing cipher of women pushed to the forefront, join Anton Russell and a bevy of other Tucson poets for Mama's Milk at La Cocina on the third Sunday of every month and prepare to be moved. So there you have it, folks. Five amazing Black creatives enriching the Tucson art scene, one dress, one rhyme, one metaphor, and one painting at a time. As a Black creative myself, I can honestly say we are looking forward without ever forgetting where we came from and doing our damnedest to leave a legacy worth its weight in gold. Happy Black Futures Month, folks. Happy Black Futures Month. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. You can find more of her writing online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. People come to the United States for many reasons. In the case of our next guest, it was to follow her musical dreams. Nino Bagrazzi started her career late for a classical musician. She gave her first piano recital at age nine. Since then, her talent has been noted in international competitions across Europe, Asia, and the Americas. 
After studying at two of the most prestigious conservatories in New England, Nino Bacrazzi accepted an invitation to study and teach at the University of Arizona. Freelance writer Bryn Baylor talked with Bacrazzi after her return from playing recital tours in Spain and the Czech Republic. I'm Nina Bakradze, pianist and student of University of Arizona. Right now I'm doing my doctoral program in piano performance and a minor in orchestra conducting. I am also a teaching assistant at the university, so I study, perform, compete at the same time. Where are you from? I'm from Republic of Georgia. Tbilisi is the capital city, so I studied there. I earned my bachelor's degree and master's degree in Georgia. And then on, only on 2011, I moved to the United States. It seems like Europeans in general have a lot of affection for classical music, maybe even more so than the, the United States. Do you find that to be true? Exactly. Of course, they have traditions and, and quite unique history, very old. Everything started there, of course. And, but I think that, you know, right now it's a very good place to be, I mean, United States, because a lot of people came here to share their knowledge. In different times in, in the world history, we, will, we, we know that there were different centers. Um, and usually musicians were trying to move from their places, their countries to the, the center to just have opportunity to perform and, and write music or, you know, just to interact with, with interesting musicians and, and people. So right now I think one of the center is United States, so I'm very proud to be here. Who are your favorite composers? Oh, I love, I love everyone, every composer that I play. That's, I think, the most important because in the process of working, which is very um, complicated and hard, you have to be engaged. Of course, mostly, mostly, I think, romantic composers. Are there also certain emotions that you, that you feel in different composers? It's totally emotional. It includes that. It, it's, with, it's impossible without emotions and, and without nerves and nervousness and you have to be excited what you are doing and of course you are because I want to be a professional as everyone else right so I'm trying to go a little bit deeper than just to be emotional it's thinking process and feeling together now when did you decide that you wanted to be a performer your parents are musicians correct yes they spoiled me I think I was backstage child. I, I spent all my life in the backstage, so that was my wish to finally to stay and to be alone on the stage without everyone, just to enter and to receive my portion of applause. And of course that sound, you know, and, and, and feeling, it's very magical in, in a way. And yes, that was the first thing when I thought that I want to be a musician, but as a pianist, after first recital, I remember I said, I want to be a pianist. My parents had absolutely different plans about me. They were thinking that I might sing because I was singing all my, all my childhood and it's very common in Georgia to sing. They had hope, but unfortunately or fortunately, you know, I found that piano the most independent instrument. Uh, and I could keep it for a long time for myself because, you know, you can't do it well if you are, for example, a classical dancer. 
And I thought that, and, and my favorite pianist is Vladimir Horowitz, and there are unique recording of, recordings of him when he is at age probably 80, and I thought that, oh, I also want to be like that. What do you think about when you're at the piano and practicing? Mostly, of course, you, you as a performer try to read well the manuscript. That's the most important part, I think to understand what exactly composer meant when he put some certain dynamics there or tempo markings or anything. Very small detail can change uh, many things during while uh, performance or interpretation. Uh, and then, then you're finding yourself in that music. How do you define yourself as an artist? Artist is a very loud word. It's <laughs> for me. I am searching, I'm a wanderer. I think. I'm wondering. I'm trying to find uh, the ways to express myself and I'm learning. I hope I will learn till end of my life and I will never stop that process. That will be a very, very nice thing to do. Bryn Baylor talked with pianist Nino Bakrazi. For more than three decades, Rick Wehmer has been traveling the world, pushing the boundaries of traditional mime by blending it with other disciplines and practicing body theater. With humor and heart, he engages his audience in mostly nonverbal but very expressive ways. His newest project, a collection of three different stories called Tales of Transformation, debuts this weekend. I asked Rick Wehmer to tell me about what's in store. When I speak about physical theater, I really speak a lot about how the message or the image that's being communicated or the narrative that's being communicated, that the physical embodiment of that is an essential form of the communication of the concept, the idea, the thought, or the theme, and that that's carried through the physical bodies of the actors I think as a child and through life, somehow for me, the body was always the first point of knowledge for me. If I could somehow embody things, I would understand them better. So when I found mine, which would have been in my uh, late 20s, actually, I came to it kind of late discovering it, it was just so logical for me and beyond logic. It was like, this is the visceral presence I live in my daily life. And I've been looking for a way to match that in a creative process, but I didn't know one existed. Were you a quiet child? Oh my God, Mark. So here's the deal. The truth is I didn't speak, at least according to the myth of the family. I didn't speak until I was close to four or so, maybe even closer to five years old. I was raised in a family that had tons of women, sisters older than me, and my mother and tons of female cousins. So um, my parents actually took me to the doctor and they did hearing tests and all kinds of things thinking I might be deaf. But the truth was, as it turned out, Everybody just kind of handled my kind of grunting and pointing and waited on me, truthfully. So I didn't have to speak. 
Mm-hmm. And um, the family doctor finally came around, according to the story in the family, and um, said, what happens when he wants milk out of the refrigerator? Well, he goes to the refrigerator and he pounds on it or he points to it. What do you do? And my mom said, well, we get him the milk. And the doctor said, stop getting him the milk. And so when I first spoke in the family, it was complete sentences. It was to ask for things. Yeah, I just started out asking for things in whole questions. And it's funny. Rick, tell me what are the main themes that run through these three performances and and are they interlinked? Yeah, the name of the show as a whole is Tales of Transformation. So obviously the main link that I'm kind of exploring and working with are the various forms and ways that transformation impacts human life. And um, one of the pieces is called Inside Caligari. We're working with four women in the company and I'm really trying to explore how we are transformed through this constant bombardment of media data. And what does that do to us? And it's loosely inspired by the old film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. What inspired me from that is to really look at kind of this carnival of the mind that occurs when we try our best to absorb from every device, media device we have and media source. We try to take in all that content. It changes us. And move into another piece, which is called Genesis, which is a solo monologue, a high form character that I created. Um, There I'm looking at how does the journey from an openness to life and all possibility transform us as we begin to see that openness be narrowed by human experience. So the loss of innocence, for example, changes perspective. And as events happen in our life, we kind of have to re-sculpt how we respond. And then the final piece that we're doing is a piece that's been adapted by playwright um, Colin Teven, and it's called Uh, Kafka's Monkey, and it features uh, an actress, Kate Clark, and that piece really is about the transformation of a chimpanzee into a human. Well, we'll see. Rick Weimer, thank you for your time. You bet. Kate Clark is an actor and drama instructor who recently made the move to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll hear her perform an excerpt from Kafka's Monkey in the role of Red Peter, a chimpanzee who once captured and exposed to the world of men for the first time, gains the power to speak and reflects on his transformation from wild animal to something quite different. After those two shots, I came to myself. This is where my memory gradually begins. Below decks, on the Hagenbeck steamer, inside a cage. Not a four-sided barred cage, but a three-sided cage nailed to the ship's wall. The construction too low to stand up in, too narrow to sit down in. I had to squat, knees bent and trembling all the time, and since probably for a time I wished to see no one, 
to stay in the dark forever. I turn towards the wall, while the bars cut into my flesh behind. This method of caging wild beasts in the first days of captivity is, from a human point of view, supposed to have advantages. And in light of my experiences, I can't deny that from a human point of view this is true. But I did not have that point of view then. All I could see for the first time in my life was that there was no way out. At least, no direct way. Behind me, the cage. In front, the wall of the ship. Plank fitted tight to heavy wooden plank. True, I did spy a gap. A narrow opening between the planks. A hole. A hole! I greeted it with a howl. Oh, blissful howl of ignorance. It was not big enough to squeeze a finger through, nor could all the strength of an ape enlarge it. After this I made surprisingly little noise, I'm told. They concluded that I'd die, or if I managed to survive this critical first period, I'd be highly suitable for training. I survived hopelessly sobbing, painfully hunting for fleas, listlessly licking a coconut shell, beating my skull against the wooden wall, sticking my tongue out at whoever came near. This was how I filled the first few days of this, my new life. And over and above it all, one feeling. No way out. Of course, what I felt then as an ape, I can only now represent in human terms, and therefore I misrepresent it. But although I can never truly reach back to what I once was, there is something of the truth in these words. Always before I'd had so many ways out of everything, and now I had none. I was cornered, penned in. Had I been nailed to the ship's wall, my right to move could not have been more abused. Why? Scratch the flesh raw between your toes, but you won't find an answer. Press yourself against the bars until it nearly cuts you in two, but you won't find an answer. No way out. I had no way out. And so I had to devise one, for without, you die. All that time, facing the wall, I should have died, yet... As far as Herr Hagenbeck was concerned, the place for apes was in a cage nailed to the wall. And so I had to stop being an ape. Kate Clark performed an excerpt from Kafka's Monkey. She and Rick Waymer are starring in Tales of Transformation, with performances Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Zuzi Theater in the historic Y on North Fifth Avenue in Tucson. We have a link for tickets and more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>